on X. Get in the hunt, baby. Listen, I may or may not get lost or turned around in the woods with me and Andy when I'm out grouse hunting. And I can tell you that, yes, Onyx drops pins. Yes, it helps me find spots with e-scouting. But basically, it helps me stay unlost so that I can be here on podcast night. Get in the hunt on X. Our baby Gunner Kennels. Man, one of the things that I love about Gunner Kennels is they're thinking about our older hunting buddies. Old Buck, he hangs out in a Gunner Kennel when he goes to and fro. And in his, we've got the ortho pad. He's got the old joints. And, and even if your dog's not old like Buck, you just want a little bit of added protection as you're rolling down the road to keep that dog from bouncing around a little bit. So the ortho pad, super huge. If you got a younger dog that may dig a little bit, maybe chew a little bit, that performance pad is going to be clutch as well. So check it out. It's the full kit brought to you by Gunner Kennels, always innovating our industry and always keeping your dog safe. Sliding the dms if you'd like to learn more about getting you and your dog into a gunner kennel our dt systems baby dog tested and dog tough we've got those soft mouth dummies now listen everybody knows that we need more bumpers i'm not talking about one or two or three i'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire i like using white or black and white bumpers when i'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds you can get the orange ones i dig it but add a bunch to your repertoire and i'm again i'm not talking about three to six if you're working on t pattern if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds you need a bunch a dozen 18 the soft mouth dummies by dt can't be beat check them out lone dt difference let's go it's force fetch baby it's the number one question we get asked you don't know how to fix it let me help you let me get you to your goals we built a course bunch of videos i think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. We've got a good show for you, but you know they are or you wouldn't be back baby we've got kevin chef the retriever trainer you can find him on the old instagrams awesome dude tons of knowledge we had a great conversation and really dove deep on building a young dog building their marketing marking abilities and uh, a bunch of other good stuff so stay tuned but you know what we got to do that you can noobah baby the food the fuels the truck of lone duck i need a bumper sticker for that there kev but the new formula you know it three month trial check it out in the first month you're gonna maybe start noticing some changes second month even more third month you're sold give it a try check them out you canuba baby next up dogtra kevin Tell everybody, I always talk about the 1900S, but you and Birdie and Covey use the 1902, which is the two-dog do. unit. Tell them about that, baby. I love it. It's super handy. Uh, it looks very similar to the 1900S, um, which I used to use when I had one dog, so it's a very easy switch for me, but now it's just super convenient having two dogs with one control, um, and I even have it color-coded, orange and black. I always know who to, uh, 
be able to retrieve with the buttons. So it's super handy. I'd highly recommend it to anybody. Um, you know, it, it's that usual dog tra, customer service, the knowing what you're going to get when you hit the button, the you know whatever level you need. It it, it couldn't be more reliable. So that's what I like to use. Heck yeah, man. Nice. Next up, man's best kennel. You know what I'm talking about. Gunner Kennels. The innovators in our industry for the gear we need and use for our dogs. Made in America. If you'd like to get you into a Gunner Kennel, we can help you out, give you a little podcast help. You know what I'm saying? Get into that DMs. Shoot us a DM. And did you did you see on Instagram they were running a huge like warehouse sale on a ton of their gear? hats and shirts and whatever they're like 40 or 50 percent off oh Kinda dang cool. they got some good gear man yeah 40 50 percent off go get you a gunner kennel hat baby come on check them out next up traeger grills smoke them if you got them rolling that smoke i'm gonna go best unit for the traveling man or woman is the ranger that i got you can fit a boatload of wingy dingies on there. Easy to carry. Plug her in. It it's just set it and forget it. I don't hope we don't get sued for saying set it and forget it. But man, eh, I nobody listens to that. It's fine. Yeah, no doubt. Um, <laughs> it's just, dude, so nice to have down here on our road trip. I feel like I'd be pretty bummed out if I couldn't be using my Traeger on the road. So if you travel to hunt us, if you go camping in an RV. If you got a little cabin in the woods and, you know, you got a little electricity, you just hook that little Traeger Ranger up and you can have that smoke on the road. Next up, Kent Ammunition, Kent Cartridge on the old Instagrams. You know it. We love it. I shoot it. Kevin misses with it. Mmm. Bismuth. Kevin, give it a try. Do it. Do it. Oh, yeah. Give them the business with the bismuth. Check them out. Uh, I, I do appreciate everybody who's gone on there and done done the old bismuth on the Instagrams. It really lets them know that you're a, a fan and a supporter of the show and a supporter for what they do. Um, lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. They keep us in tune with you and you in tune with us. All right, guys. Get ready. We got old Kevin on the Kevin and Kevin on the show. This is the first Kevin and Kevin duo. I like it. It's gonna All be right. adorable. It I is. can't wait. Kevin, thank you for joining us tonight. Do us a favor. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Hey Bob, I want to thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I've listened to some episodes and I think they're great. I think they're very informative to your listeners. And uh, so yeah, it's it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I've been training retrievers since 1996 when I got my first dog, uh, back in the day, I wasn't really thinking about training retrievers, uh, that just happened. The, the breeder was training retrievers and I was stunned by what he could get them to do. And from that point on, I was addicted. So that's kind of where I got my start. Um, four years later, uh, I was out training with a, a field trial pro from Canada and, uh, just throwing birds trying to learn everything I could like everybody else in the sport. And, uh, at the end of the day, I said to him, you know what? I, I've always thought I'd like to train retrievers professionally. And that was kind of the end of our conversation. And, uh, two weeks later he called me and said, uh, Kevin, I'm looking for an assistant. Would you be interested to coming to work for me? 
And that's kind of where I got my start as, as a professional retriever trainer. Big decision to, to change career paths, but uh, I, I decided to jump in and uh, ended up down in Georgia for the winter, for that winter. And uh, first week I thought, what the heck am I doing here? What have I done? But uh, 20-some years later, it's, it's been a real uh, adventure, just uh, such a great learning experience and um, um, just getting to see so much of the country and learning so much of the, about dog training and what the dogs can do. And uh, I do kind of feel like I'm stumbling along here right now. <laughs> no, hey, no you're good. You're dude. doing great. You're doing great. Okay, so, I wanna... so, so tell me who was, who was the trainer that you worked with back in, in the day? Uh, uh, back at that time, I was working for Jamie Ballaston. He was uh, a field trial trainer from, um, I forget the city he was from, but uh, he was a very good retriever trainer. He uh, trained field trial dogs for people from Canada and the U.S., uh, had uh, won several Canadian nationals and uh, had been finalist at U.S. nationals. Um, had uh, was just very cerebral about his dog training, very uh, empathetic. He treated the dogs extremely well, very thoughtful. I don't think I could have trained with a better person at that time when I look back at it now and all the different option I the options I had he was he was just such a great dog trainer and I really appreciate getting the chance to train with him so are you Canadian or are you on the border of Canada and U.S. well I I am Canadian but I do live in the U.S. now I have a green card and have been living here since 2016 oh cool that's so cool yeah. so what part of Canada are you from uh, Ontario uh, Northern Ontario. I actually grew up in Northern Ontario, but as far north as you could go by road. Um, and uh, I've been coming down south to the U.S. since 2000. That's really neat. Uh, little known, yeah. you know, Kevin, I know that, you know, you've only dipped into a few of our episodes, but uh, at one time or another, Lone Ducks Gundog Chronicles was ranked number 20 in Canada for outdoor podcasts. Really? Yeah, we're at, like, we're at like 250 now. We, we've really let it slide. But, uh, yeah, little known fact, we got a lot of Canadian friends. Cool. We had, like, Very one cool. day there that we did pretty good. <laughs> We're going to hang on to that, though. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I did not know that you were from Canada. I, I, I just, I didn't know that. I assumed you were an American that, and I knew you had told me that you worked for someone from Canada, but I, I didn't know. That's really neat, man. So, yeah, you know, I would spend my uh, my winters down in the U.S. Uh, training and trialing down here, and then I go back up to Canada for the summer uh, summers and spend my, six months up there, Just back and forth. Where, 2015. Where in Georgia did you all winter? Uh, Boston, Georgia. Most people are familiar with it. It's kind of a mecca for dog training in the east. Yeah, Phil. I mean, that's that is the mecca. Yeah, that is the mecca. Yeah. So how long did you work for him? And, and tell me about that ride, like those pivotal first few years. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, I worked for Jamie for two years and, uh, as I said earlier, more often than not, I thought, what am I doing? You know, you, one day you feel like you're kind of getting the hang of it. The next day you, you feel like you don't know anything. And, um, you know, I think when you, you know, when you're, when you're not a pro and you're training your first couple of dogs, you think, wow, this is, you know, Seems pretty simple. Uh, you follow the book. Um, you cut along the dotted line. You, you know, you fold the, along the lines, and you seem to create this dog. But then, when you get working for a pro, you realize, oh, whoa, 
not every dog is created equal. And, um, a lot of times you have to think outside the box. A lot of times things don't go the way you expect them to. Um, and dogs have different personalities and it was a real struggle. I can tell you the first seven years of dog training, I didn't sleep much at night. If I wasn't thinking about dogs while I was eating my dinner, I was dreaming about them in my sleep, trying to figure out how to make them better. It was tough. It was very tough. Um, but after, after I always say after that first seven years, then things seemed to kind of gel and, uh, uh, but to this day, they're still teaching me things. I'm still learning things every day. I'm learning things from other people, just watching and asking. And, and, uh, that's kind of been, kind of been my, my trip through dog training. First of all, I can 100% relate to that. Um, I worked for a, a professional trainer in South Carolina for close to a year and cut my teeth doing his young dog program, force fetch through T pattern, um, and his obedience clients that would come in. So tons and tons of different personalities and breeds and strengths and weaknesses. And, and really even to this day in my kennel, you've got anything from a young dog who doesn't have a ton of drive, but the potential is there to dogs with too much drive, to different breeds and personalities, all the way up to dogs I've had for, you know, several years of their life and they're running Master National and trying to balance, you know, my day around puppy stuff, medium dog stuff, easy blinds, teaching blinds, and then making them harder for the other dogs to challenge them. And, and really that is, that's probably my biggest challenge right now is juggling the, the gamut of this dog and this hole is different than that hole. And instead of having, you know, 20 dogs that are all pretty similar and you can do a, a setup here and knock them all out and a setup here and knock them all out. I mean, but, but I, I guess I'm rambling, but the, the point I'm trying to make is I, I'm still, professionally I think this is going on my sixth year uh, from quitting the real world and going in and I still think about it all the time and strive to learn from everybody and that's part of why this podcast is so special to me is I get to pick your brain and I get to learn from you and take something away from you and then you know two weeks ago we had Lyle Steinman on and you know two weeks before that we had someone else on and and we are I'm constantly digesting tips and tricks for our listeners, but don't think they fall on deaf ears here, buddy. Yeah, I totally feel you there. Yeah. Even my amateurs teach me so much, you know, I'll put a seminar on and have a group of 10 amateurs there. And at the end of the day, we'll be sitting around and I'll just throw this question out there. What do you do that nobody else does that you that think that makes you think you have an advantage? And somebody will come up with some drill or some marking scenario or something like that. And it's just amazing what, what information there is out there. If you, you just poke around and ask for it. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think the point that I really like that you made is even after doing it since 1996 and, and again on the podcast, I'm not big on numbers. So that was a while ago. I'm not big on, you know, that could have been what, uh, 24. I'm not good. Just a few years ago, yeah, just a few years ago, but you're still learning. And I think if everybody Absolutely. can take a deep breath while they're listening to this and say, I don't have to have it all figured out. 
I don't have to, you know, this dog that is giving me a challenge or I'm struggling on teaching it to sit on the whistle or what, you know, whatever the case may be that you're working on, we're all working on something. We're all learning still, no matter whether you've done it for five years, six months or 25 years. Yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, if you have that open mind, as long as you're dog training, that there's always something to learn, you'll keep getting ahead. But the moment you stop thinking there's something to learn, um, you're falling behind and somebody else is getting ahead of you. So you better keep that open mind. No doubt about it. So did, in your career, yeah. were you, were you only a field trial trainer? Uh, actually I cut my teeth in, in hunt tests. Um, not in my career, but as a, as an amateur before I started uh, working for Jamie, I was running hunt tests. And then I worked for Jamie for a couple of years. He was a field trial pro, but after I stopped working for Jamie, then I got back into hunt tests for a little while just to kind of get some dogs in and was doing both field trials and hunt tests. And then there was a point at which I had to make a choice. I was either going to go one way or the other. Um, it was beginning to be too difficult to train both, uh, both places and run different events. And so I, I switched to full time to field trial. Um, can you explain that both. a little bit? Can you explain why it's difficult? Uh, just because the setups, the, the mechanics of the setups are so difficult, uh, so different. Um, just having to, you know, hide gun stations and, and, um, the distances are different. And just like you just said, I have to, I've got three levels of dogs and I have to make adjustments for all three levels of dogs. Well, then it was just adding in another, uh, adjustment I had to make to my setups in order to train hunt test dogs versus field trial dogs. Um, and just what, what you start to do is dilute the training instead of really, um, specializing in something. And that was, that was the point at which I had to make the choice, which, what are you going to do? And you chose field trial. I chose field trial. Yeah. I, I was, I, I just enjoyed the competition, I guess you could say, and, uh, being tested on a, uh, weekend, you know, on a weekend basis, um, just to see how good I was against the next guy that was, that was running and I wanted to be the best. So, um, that's, I guess that's why you could say I got into field trials. Um, just the competition side of it. Cool. So Kevin, I have a question about the dogs. Um, what, like, what do you look for in a dog when, when you see one that's extra, like, like has that special extra look, right? Like, like what is that thing that you look at a dog and like, that one, that one can come on the truck where that one's going to be a goodie. Well, I, I don't know if that's an appropriate question for me, but I guess you, I could answer, but I never really was looking for the best dog. I just love to make every dog as good as they could be. So I wasn't necessarily saying to myself, well, I want that dog on my truck or I want that dog on my truck. As long as the dog wanted to come out and work, that was, that was the biggest thing that, uh, that I looked for in a dog. If they didn't want to come out and do it, that made it awfully hard for me to train them, want to train them. But in terms of what do I look for in a, in a good dog, I mean, yeah. it, re it really is that great. There's a few things. One is marking talent and, you know, everybody talks about it, but it's just that ability to really know precisely where a bird is. Uh, you know, some, some, you, there's certain mechanics you can put into a dog. You can teach them to fight factors. You can teach them to understand concepts. 
but do they know where a bird is precisely? And that's natural talent. It's natural talent that we develop. I don't think they just come out of the womb and they're a good, they're a great marker. They're not a great marker. Um, we certainly have to do things to get them there. But um, when you have that great marker, that certainly makes things a lot easier. Uh, the other thing is, is a dog that um, strives to do the things that we teach them to do. Um, that once you show them and you shape their behavior, they say, you know what, Kevin, I really want to do it that way. And you're not on a daily basis having to tell them again how to do it or they're challenging you to find out whether they have to do it. So that personality trait is certainly important. Um, and I think they, you know, there's so many other things. I mean, they can't be too, uh, to, they can't lose their composure when they're out in the field at a field trial or a hunt test. Um, they have to be pretty composed. Um, I would say those primarily are the uh, things that I look for in a dog, a dog that has composure when they're at a test and a great marker. And they, they try to apply the things that we teach them on a daily basis without being coerced into a day and day over day again. I would second that wholeheartedly, and especially the fact the dog that comes out of the box ready to learn and happy to learn and a team player. You know, even exactly. if it's not the most talented dog, if it's coming out and having fun and trying, my gosh, that's so much more fun to train than the talented dog who, you know, tries to get away with things, if you will. You know, oh, well, you know, let me see if I can uh, cheat this bank or, uh, well, you know, for the last four years of your life, you weren't supposed to. Uh, you'd think it would be through your little thick head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm with and, you. Uh, coming back to the question that you uh, somebody asked earlier, um, uh, why did you choose field trials over hunt tests? And maybe at that time in my career, I was like, I wanted to win. But as, I, as my career evolved, it was more about getting the most out of any dog that I had to train so long as they wanted to train. And, and it, I think I could have gone either way. You know, if I had gone hunt test, I could have done the same thing or field trials. Um, and that's what I looked forward to every day was just coming out and training those dogs and getting the most out of them. That's cool. And now you're in a new transition, if you will, you, you personally in, in your life. So yes. now you are not training dogs every day. What are you doing? So in 2015, I, I had kind of thought, you know, I, I wanted to do something different. Uh, I actually was, I was going to have a major career change. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. I knew I didn't want to be working 24 seven, 365. And for all you people out there that are thinking that it's so glamorous training retrievers full time, think again, uh, <laughs> it is a lot of work and I know you can speak to it too, Bob. Uh, but it is, it's so much work. Not, it's not just the work. It's, it's every day for 365 days a year. You cannot walk away from the kennel. You can't trust the dogs with somebody else. Um, you give up everything else in your life. It's all consuming. And in 2015, I thought, you know what? There's more to life than doing this 365 days a year. So um, I closed my kennel 
And shortly after that, I got a few calls. Two clubs called me to see if I would come and put on a seminar. And another person called me and asked me if I would come. And she was an amateur. She had several dogs. She asked me if I would come and spend time with her from time to time, maybe three weeks here, six weeks there, just working with her dogs while she would go away, uh, doing whatever else she had, or be there training while she was training. And I thought, okay, well, let's try these things out. And that evolved into basically my coaching business, um, which has been a lot of seminars and then uh, more recently virtual coaching uh, where I do everything from uh, develop a training program for an individual to um, problem solve for individuals, uh, offer advice on training, work with small groups of people on short-term basis, uh, just going out on a daily basis, training with them, setting up their tests, uh, helping them make their dogs better. It's, there's several facets to the business really, but it's, it's, it's all about coaching. You know, every athlete out there, every professional athlete anyway, has a coach pretty well. Um, they're all trying to be the best, do the best, and they need somebody to sort of stand behind them, watch what they're doing, see how they're doing it, and then offer advice, critique, um, because a lot of times when you're standing here beside your dog, you don't really know what's going on or you need another set of eyes or somebody else with experience to say, hey, have you thought about doing this? Or you need to add this to your program. And that's essentially what I do. It's all coaching. That's really, really cool. Before we jump into some tips and tricks, uh, I want to learn a little bit about some of the dogs in your career that maybe you've owned or trained that were really special. Uh, if you want to tell a story about a dog or two, that's oh my always, those are all like we all get highlights and pumped up about talking about them. Uh, well, I mean, I can talk about my first dog that everybody, you know, probably just about everybody's had. His name was Arcade Benjamin McKenzie. I got him out of the newspaper, but he, he was, he was probably the best first dog I could have had. He was passionate about learning. He wanted to learn. Um, he loved retrieving and I, I got my hunting retriever champion title on him quite quickly and he's the one who helped me fall in love with the sport. And he was my baby. Um, I couldn't have asked for a better dog. Um, and then after that, I mean, early on in my career, I had another dog named Ellen um, L's um, Black Tie Affair. And he showed talent very early. You know, you asked me, what, what does a good dog look like? And he was one of those dogs that just seemed to know where every bird was. It didn't matter how long it was what kind of terrain it was across or piece of water it was across. He, whether it was the third bird of a quad or, you know, the first bird down, he knew where they were consistently could, could find birds precisely. Um, he ended up being a hundred point all age dog, uh, was a Canadian national amateur champion, was titled on both sides of the border. He was just, he was a great, great dog. And there was another dog, like him, uh, in fact, was his brother, who was very similar in a lot of ways and ended up getting both his Canadian national titles. Um, but there's so many good dogs I've trained. I mean, it's hard to talk about just one. Some of them I had for, you know, just through their early career, like, um, um, oh, what's his name? B. Bumble, his stinger, uh, did his basics and his transition training through his qualifying career and he turned out to be a great retriever. 
Um, so many. I just don't even know where to talk, where to start. It's fun hearing you, about those, you, though. I'm sorry, Kev. Uh, it's so fun to hear about the like. Now, maybe not everybody knows about the Bee Bumble dog, but there are, are folks up in New York that have puppies off of him that are in the Retriever Club that I belong to. And you see him on the internet with a litter coming up, and it's like, that's not a, a dog to shake a stick at. And you had a very pivotal part in training that dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I could tell, from, again, from a young age that he was, he was talented and he had skills in, in all departments. You know, some dogs are great markers, but they can't run a blind. Some dogs are, you know, they're very disciplined, but they don't mark very well. So it, but he had, he had everything, you know, in one package, which is what we're all kind of looking for. Um, and, um, I, I know that he placed or finished just about every trial. I think he placed just about every trial I ever ran him in. And I, I know he was uh, placing in amateurs as a two-year-old and, and probably won an amateur as a two-year-old. So very early, um, had a great start from a very early age. And, and that dog, Black Tie Affair, that I ran, he, he uh, had a second place in an open as a two-year-old and was titled as an American field champion at three years old. Just a great dog. That's extremely and, and like talented. Yep. I mean, the, the thing for me, Kevin, is the concepts that they have to learn and be held accountable for and taught and then have it be comprehended to where when you're going up against competition, not pass or fail, winner, it's win or lose, against some of the best dogs in uh, you know north america in north america basically at that age i mean how what do you think the average age field champion is i think it's around six i was gonna say six five six yeah that's i believe it's six twice as old as those two dogs twice as old and so that's twice the amount of training that's twice the amount of marks twice the amount of blinds Twice the amount of traveling yeah, you, up and down to new grounds and new pieces of water, like, and the, and ha- they were able to accomplish that. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. That's badass, actually. And so many dogs. I mean, you're talking about the dogs that actually title. So many dogs don't title. <laughs> you know, they right. they never get there. Um, so the percentage is very very small. That's really cool. Uh, yeah. We get asked this often, and so I'm gonna you know, ask this to you when you're looking at genetics, is there a line of dogs or their specific, you know, studs or, or females that you just are, are strong that you've had experience with several of them, you know, puppies off of them. You're like, man, this dog throws at such badasses. You know, I can't speak to a lot of the dogs that are out there now. Um, and I don't get, I don't look at the bloodlines as much anymore as I used to. Although I could say, well, I, I you know, I've had several, I've trained with several out of this breeding or that breeding and they you know, really like what I see. But I know back in the early days when I was training, I mean, it was, I was looking at the derby list all the time, all the time. And it was, I mean, simple math, you know, who, who's producing it and what are they doing? And back, back when I was really studying it, it was, 
these are old names. I mean, Lean Mack and, um, uh, oh gosh. I mean, Lean Mack was just one that everybody knows and he, he just was such a producer. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that since. Um, I don't think we've seen anything but, before him or after him. Yeah. I mean, it was just incredible. And it's not just how many dogs he produced, but how many field champions and national field champions. And, um, it, it just, it, the list is so, so long, so, so long, crazy. But I, 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 I don't think I'm the right person to sort of speak on genetics. I mean, I like to look at what the dogs are producing in terms of, um, um, you know, are, are the, how successful are their progeny? And, um, if I'm looking for a female, it's going to be a working female, a female who's showing that she has a lot of the qualities that, that I want in my retriever. It's not so, and, and a lot of times it's not the bloodline. Like I want to see the dog working. I want to see how they train. I want to ask questions about that. Um, and both parents are, you know, so important. And if there's, Anything you don't like, well, don't get a puppy out of those parents for sure. Any of the qualities that you see, um, don't get a puppy out of them because genetics are so strong. I mean, <laughs> over oh, the years, huge. it's just it's just crazy how you can you can see the, the same traits in in the get that uh, that the parents have. It, uh, I, I think yeah. the females have a lot more to play than. I'm going to go 10 years ago, people talked about maybe, maybe longer, but, but I think the puppies that I raise really have more of their mother than their father. And I think it goes so hand in hand in how the mother raises them. And I don't know, man, I just, I see all the puppies that we've raised and I've then trained them like, boy, that's a real cruise characteristic in that puppy or that's a real Sam thing that they did or whatever, you know, the case may be it. And back in the day it was the stud dog and then a female with a good pedigree and whether she worked or not didn't quote unquote matter. It was, she was a, they call him a brood bitch. So, um, Yes, she had a great pedigree, but it was never tested, and maybe she still threw excellent puppies, but she was never, you know, put through the ringer, if you will, to to see what she would train like. You know, is she soft? Is she hard-headed? Does she, is she compliant? Does she mark well? It was, she has a good pedigree, breed her to a badass male, sell the puppies. And uh, the more and more and more I've been in this game, the more important I think, what is that mom like? Tell me about the mom. I, I I can find out about the male. There's enough out there. Tell me about that mom. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. I agree. Uh, Kevin Owens, you had a question for him earlier. Do you remember? Is it still a relevant one? My bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I was just wondering, I, you know, we've kind of talked a lot about labs. Um, and I know you're, you're not fully running a kennel anymore, but have you, do you, um, I don't know. Are, are there any other retrievers that you've become partial to or that you've owned in your lifetime or that you kind of specialize in? And uh, I'll segue only, that real quick. Cause Kevin has a golden retriever that is cool. And, uh, so 
that that's kind of probably why he asked. That. Oh yeah. So if you were going to cue this up by saying, I hate golden retrievers, <laughs> then I guess we'd have to end the show, but that's, but, uh, well, I'll let, let you go. So see what you have to say. Yeah. Um, well, I've never owned anything but laps myself personally, but I've worked okay. with uh, golden retrievers quite a bit. Um, yeah. Chesapeake, some Chesapeake Bay retrievers and, uh, a few Boykins actually, uh, in my time. And, uh, I think actually when I first started I, on my own, I had a Boykin and, and have coached some people with Boykins and that's, that's kind of been fun. Um, but I, I think the, um, I could be wrong about this, but I think the Goldens are, have been making a strong comeback in the last several years. And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the training methods evolving that we're, again, we're much more cerebral about the training, um, much more measured. Uh, we're trying to be teachers. And people who approach training with that philosophy will be successful with it. And I, I know a lot of people that have been very successful with golden retrievers uh, throughout my career. And um, I certainly wouldn't discourage anybody from training a golden retriever. Um, well, that's great because we're going to have puppies soon. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a great segue. Um, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Are you, uh, how, how much are you traveling up and down, uh, and I don't know, do you ever miss doing the hunt test and stuff? I feel like there's so much to it that, and you did it for so long that, is there a part of you that misses it sometimes? Yeah, I've, I've run a, a few field trials in the last couple of years for clients, just running their dogs for them. Um, and you know what, I go back and I'm, I'm excited to get there, but at the end of the day, I'm going, yeah, that was fun, but. And I don't feel this real itch to get back uh, running trials on the weekend. I do love the training. I, I'm passionate about the training, but no, I don't. I don't miss being on the on the road running field trials um, or or hunt tests for that matter. Um, I, but I, like I said, I do love training the dogs. No way now. Try had to run. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you get to do a lot of hunting as well, or do you kind of do more? You know, I, more of the training is up your alley. Well, I love to hunt, and uh, when I lived up in Canada, I did a ton of bird hunting up there. And I still get out occasionally down here to do bird hunting, but I've got to, I've got to get, I've, I got to get some hunting friends down here. <laughs> I live in Florida. Now. I don't think we mentioned I live in Panama City Beach, Florida. So, uh, I, I've got, yeah, I've got to find some hunting friends down here to get back out there and do it. Cool. Yeah, there's probably more fishing in that area than there is, uh, you know, going out grouse hunting or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's gotta be some good duck hunting here. I just gotta find it. No doubt. But I do, I do miss it. I, I love grouse hunting. I love woodcock hunting. I love, you know, upland, um, and duck hunting. Duck hunting is such a blast. So I, I, I miss it. Have you done any traveling to go do some duck hunting in your time? Uh, I went, I've been up to North Dakota, um, but most of my, I mean, I did do some hunting down in Georgia when I would go down there for the winter, but I'd also hunt uh, up at home for every fall um, through November. I just had some, I had pretty decent hunting around where I used to live. So, and I was there until November. So it was, I got a pretty good fill in while I was home every year. Cool. Wow, that's awesome. All yeah. right. Let's dive into, uh, let's dive into the, the training, bud. I, sure. I'm really, really excited because before we started the show, you and I had a discussion about some, some ideas for the show. And yep. one of the topics you, you had brought up is basics, 
and we hammer this a lot and it's it is the core of the questions that come in if we had to say 70 percent of the questions that come in are all about building a better dog from the ground up you know that young dog that six month old that whatever it is building a good young dog with strong basics and you had brought up marking and so I want to kind of give you the floor to take it wherever you want to go. If you want to talk about the, you know, developing better marking first, or if you want to talk a little bit about other aspects of basics and then dive into the marketing, I'm going to let you take the floor. Okay. Yeah, no, I'd I'd really love to talk about the marking. I've given this some thought since, you know, since we first talked and I, my feeling about marking and the way most people approach it, with a young dog, that is, you know, they get their puppy home and then, you know, what do they do with that puppy for the first several months? Um, I, I don't really know if they give it a lot of thought and they just kind of go out and haphazardly, you know, throw marks and let's see what happens. And that first several months of marking is, probably the biggest factor in determining whether you'll have a superb precise marking retriever or just an average retriever. And what I'd like to talk about here is, you know, some of the things that your listeners can do to, to try and develop good marking habits in their young dogs and, and, uh, kind of go from there. I'm in, let it rip baby. Okay. Um, well, I trying to think about how to approach this, but I guess, you know, when I think about a puppy or I get a client who's, who's, who wants to take up the coaching, um, that I offer for, for basics, um, one of the big conversations we have is about marking and how to make sure they're developing the marking in a way that's going to make sure that their dog does three or four things. One is mark accurately and precisely. Uh, develop a superb memory and make sure that they're very confident and driven to retrieve. Those are the goals that, you know, we're all looking for in a good marking retriever. And in broad terms, you know, how do you achieve those goals? I, I think what it comes down to is starting with a well thought out plan and not just, as I said, sort of, uh, haphazardly going out there and throwing birds. You've got to pay close attention to the details. You've got to take every opportunity you have to work on it. And you've got to ingrain these desired habits and shape behavior uh, that you'd like to like to see in your retriever. At what age are you starting this process? Well, I mean, it really starts almost as soon as you get your puppy home. And I'm not sure we're going to talk a lot about what you do in your living room. But, you know, as most people say, you get your puppy out, you ball up a sock, you you get a hallway, close all the doors and throw the sock down the hallway and you let your puppy go. And that's kind of where it starts. But I think what I'd really like to talk about is what do you do once you start to get out in the yard with your dog? And um, so I'm with you. I, I agree. I want to do that too, but I, yeah, we get a lot of, I just want to try and give a timeline or an estimate, okay. right? Like that. An estimate. Yeah. So between yeah. 
eight weeks and three and a half months, we're doing, you know, the indoor stuff and building a little retreat exactly. drive and playing and socializing, um, letting them be a puppy a little bit. But now at, you know, and just try and as you're explaining it, be like, I'm talking about a nine month old or I'm talking about yeah, a f- I, four month old. Great. Yeah, that's good. Good idea here. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm with you right there. So you kind of get out into the yard about, let's say 12 to 12 to 16 weeks, somewhere in there, you're looking, your, your puppy's kind of ready to get out into the yard to do something a little more formal than just throwing a sock down the hallway um, or a toy down the hallway. Um, and what, what you're looking for is, as I said, to ingrain some habits and, you know, those habits are essentially, you know, watching the, the, whatever you're throwing being thrown, running straight out to it, finding it as soon as they get there and then starting back with it. And, um, what I like to do with a puppy or a young dog at 16, 12 to 16 weeks is you get them out in the yard. It's just you and the dog. You're just going to do some hand thrown singles. And a lot of times you'll just sort of lift the front end of the dog off the ground. And so you're just kind of holding their front feet off the ground and you'll flip a bumper out from your side. You've got to wait till that bumper comes to rest on the ground and then you can release the dog to go and make the retrieve. And at that point you're, what your dog is doing is they're watching the thing going through the air and they're watching it hit the ground and their eyes are completely focused on it and they're taking off and they're going straight to the retrieve, uh, picking it up and coming back as you coax them back to you. Um, but like I said, the most important part of that is that they're watching it and they're going straight to it. Those are two of the habits that you're trying to ingrain in your retriever and it starts right there. Um, getting out as often as you can to retrieve is another thing that is really important because I get, you're trying to ingrain habits. You, you can't do that if you're going out once a week. You can do it, though, if you're going out two or three times a day if you've got the time to do it. I agree. And your sessions are short. Your sessions are short. You know, maybe three retrieves. doesn't take very long to do that. Um, keeps the drive going. Um, that sort of thing. I agree. Now, when do you transition? Well, and I might be getting ahead of myself, but, but you can help me rein it in if I'm going too fast in, in the process that you're thinking in your head. But when are you transitioning from hand thrown from your side to incorporating a bird boy or a winger or a thunder launcher or whatever the, the folks may have to get the dog to look out and start marking from out in the field versus from your hip. Okay. So I don't necessarily transition away from throwing from your side very early. I may act, add in uh, gunners that are out in the field throwing uh, before long. And um, I'll get to that in a moment, but essentially I do hand thrown retrieves from that point at 16 weeks until I'm right through the yard work. So every day that I'm out doing yard work or every opportunity I get, I'm doing hand-thrown retrieves with my retriever on a soccer-like, golf course-like mode field where the dog can always see a large white bumper sitting on the ground if they're able to pick up a large white bumper. 
Um, I'm doing, I'm keeping those marks short. Um, and if you, if you stop and think about that for a minute, if you did two or three retrieves three times a day, from the time your puppy started out in the yard at 12 to 16 weeks until you were finished the basics, how many retrieves would that be? It would be, it would be a lot of retrieves, right? Yeah. I mean, could be hundreds, could be maybe thousands. I don't know. I've never done the math, but I know it's a lot of retrieves. And if you don't do any of those, that's a lot less retrieving that your dog has than, than a, somebody else who does it every day. It's kind of a waste. Of, it's a waste of time not to do it, really. If you're already out in the yard doing your force fetch or you're working your tea or you're doing tree training, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're already out there with puppies to take, to take a few minutes before you start your training session, stopping in the middle of your training session, and then again at the end of your training session to do a few hand-thrown retrieves can really add up over a long period of time. And what am I doing by doing those hand-thrown retrieves? Teaching them to watch the throw, teaching them to target the, the object that they're going to retrieve on the ground precisely where it is and to run straight to it. And you do that every day, and it, it ingrains that habit. But probably at about, I'm trying to think how, at what age I would transition or begin. I don't want to say transition because I continue to do the hand-thrown retrieves, but probably at, uh, this is a tough question, probably, probably somewhere around force fetch, I will start to put gunners in the field. Now, the, the, the marks are extremely short at that point. They're probably no more than 25 yards. Why? And, well, again, it's about creating habits. What, what habits are we trying to, to develop in the dog? Precision marking. Go straight. Go straight, precision marking, but it's go straight, go straight to the retrieve and find it without a hunt. I, I failed to mention that earlier, but I don't want my dogs to hunt at an early age. They, they will certainly learn how to hunt because they will certainly have retrieves that they don't know precisely where they are and they will look around till they find them. But the first thing they have to learn is how to mark accurately. You almost, you can almost never catch up on that as far as I'm concerned. If you don't get it early, they're never going to have it. If they're programmed to run straight to the retrieve and they find it precisely where they think it is, they learn to rely on that that skill or that, that knowledge, I guess you could call it. Um, and so that's why the marks are kept so short. A hand thrown retrieve limits how far you can throw it. A gunner standing at 25 yards is short and they can sitting at your side at 25 yards. If you throw that bumper on a golf course, like, or soccer field, like, a piece of ground, there's no doubt that they, your puppy can see that large white bumper sitting there. So what do they do? Do they look back to the gun or do they keep watching the bumper, Bob? Keep watching the bumper. Right. And if they keep watching the bumper, when you release them to go, where are they going to go? To the bumper, baby. Right. And when they get to the bumper, what are they going to do? They're going to run looking for it or they're going to find it? Find it. Exactly. I like it. So, 
So when that happens and you do that over and over and over again, you get a dog that marks with precision. You teach them that habit. They don't, they don't watch the bird going through the air and look back to the gun. They don't run out to the area of the fall and sort of get there and run around haphazardly going, well, where is it? I don't know where it is. And I don't usually know where it is. So let me just run this, this, this habit of, let me just go into this habit of running around until I stumble on it. They don't do that because they haven't been taught to do that. And, and I think that's what really uh, develops precision marking in young dogs. So from, from that point at, at uh, where they're running walking singles with a single gunner in the field, and maybe I should add a bit more detail to that. The person that's doing walking singles usually can throw a bumper about one and a half times the distance of a bird. And I stick with bumpers, white bumpers, for that reason. I do not go to birds because I don't want the bird anywhere near the gunner. A lot of people can't throw a bird very well. And so by using white bumpers, you can throw that, that pretty good distance. Um, and the dog learns to run at the retrieve, not the gunner. Uh, so as I said earlier, we're, we're using a single gunner initially just to get the dog used to seeing somebody throw a bumper that's standing out in the field because they haven't seen anything like that, um, yet. But once they get a little experience with walking singles, then I transition to multiple gunners in the field. And it's usually always three, three gun stations, um, it doesn't have to be three people. It could be one person walking between gun stations, but there are three chairs or three stick men in the field. And I don't really care if you're running hunt tests or field trials or you're training a hunting dog. There's one thing about having a gunner standing in the field. You can teach dogs marking concepts more easily when you have gunners standing in the field because you provide more context when a dog can visually see something out there that provides, you know, as I said, context. And, um, at any rate, um, coming back to three gunners in the field, the marks are still short. They're only at 25 yards and they are wide apart. So I'll have a gunner to the left, a gunner to the right and a gunner up the center. Um, wide open, 90 degrees apart essentially. And one of the habits that I start right off the bat is doing the center single first dog comes up to the line, looks out there, sees the gunners out there, start with the center one, then do two outside singles, all singles. What's the methodology so far, behind that? Well, it, it'll become more obvious as we go along, but, um, I think, well, can, can we hold off on that for a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so three singles, uh, and as the dog starts to, um, and I, I actually missed something in my hand thrown in the hand thrown marks as we talked, we're talking before, if I could just back up to yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, when I'm doing those hand thrown marks in the yard, uh, once I've got the dog understanding the mechanics that they just run out there and they pick it up and they come back and they seem to have those mechanics, then I'll, I'll start doing hand throwing doubles. 
Um, so I'll throw one hard to the left and one hard to the right, quickly release them to go get the one to the right. And they virtually have to run right back through me to get the one on the left. So I can kind of catch them, corral them, get the, the first bumper from them, kind of hold them up to look out there for the, the second hand thrown retrieve, which is only maybe 10 yards at the most. They spot the big white bumper. You let them go. They rush off and get it. And I, that's where I start developing memory. Um, with those hands-on retrieves. Okay, cool. Uh, again, again, because the white bumpers are sitting out there, it's almost impossible for them not to figure it out. Uh, and then it's hands-on triples and hands-on quads. Coming back to the field now uh, with those three gunners out there, once they seem to have the mechanics of running singles off those multiple guns, then it's on to doing uh, multiple retrieves. So I'll start with a single in the center, and then perhaps do an outside double. So throw the mark to the right, throw the mark to the left. Because it's so short, the bumper is sitting on a golf course-like situation. The dogs are used to targeting the retrieve at this point. When they come back with the first one, you, they've had experience doing multiples in the yard with hand throws. They look out there. They see the memory bumper sitting out on the golf course. They look, they look out. They target it. You release them. It's almost... Uh, it's almost impossible to fail. That's what I'm setting up these training tests to be like. It's impossible to fail. We want them to be 100% successful to ingrain those, to ingrain those um, habits. I think that's a really great point that you're making right now with the impossible to fail. So many people come out and train with me that look at what I'm doing with certain dogs and you're like, yeah, we'll try it. Bro, we don't try it. Do you think it's going to teach your dog something? Do you think you're going to, you know, will they be successful? Will it be too easy? Well, like we don't just try things to see if they'll screw it up. We want to build on success. Now dogs all, you know, I don't, I don't think we want to dive into this right now, but like, my thought process is sometimes they learn through failure and we've got to push them through failure and, and and challenge them. And if it's too easy for them, then what are they gaining from it uh, at an older age? But dogs learn a lot through success. And what you're talking about right now is a young dog who's learning the world and you're building a lot of confidence and success in this type of methodology. Yeah, I agree. And I think you could use an analogy. I mean, if you put a math quiz in front of a student and he isn't able to accomplish it easily, uh, he isn't going to come away from that experience better and, or she isn't going to come away from that experience better, nor are they going to be motivated to, perhaps do it again, but that's unlikely with a a young dog that they might not necessarily be motivated, but they certainly aren't going to come away from it better. And by, by very gradually changing the scenario. And that's what we're doing here. You know, it started with hand, hand retrieves in the yard singles. Then it graduated to multiples in the yard. Then it, but they've had, you know, they, they, they start to add up very quickly. If you heard me earlier, it's, it's a lot of retrieves when you're doing, 
if you're going out to train two or three times a day and during each training session you're doing breaking for two or three retrieving sessions, but they, uh, that experience adds up quickly. And then you graduate to the field. I mean, you're not really increasing the distance, but you're asking somebody else to throw. That's your next step. And then you're putting more gunners in, you know, more gunners in the field. That's the next step. And then you're starting to ask them to use their memory out in the field. But nothing is ever too hard because the retrieve is always there to see. It isn't out there at 75 yards in a, in two feet of grass or even eight inches of grass where they can't target the retreat. And so what, what happens if you go right to that, instead of giving them all this experience beforehand, they end up either A, not driving to the fall area and start to hunt early, or B, they start running at the gun, or C, they run out to the fall area and then run around like a bonehead trying to find it because they have no experience to come up with it correctly. They have no experience to draw in to try and uh, methodically figure out where it's at. And so they, what, they end, what those dogs end up doing is they just end up developing these rangy hunting patterns or they keep breaking down all the way out to the fall area. What I'm trying to encourage your listeners to do is to avoid that at all costs. If you do avoid that, then you're going to be ingraining these habits creating good experiences so that your dog has that experience to draw on when it's time to problem solve, when they can't find a retrieve immediately. They can more methodically think about how do I solve this problem and come up with a retrieve. Cool. I, uh, like, I like that. Uh, so now, now that you've got, uh, let's say, what, what would you say, six-month-old puppy, right? In I don't the, even think they're six months old. Yet. Well, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, you're right. You're a, you're a six-month-old puppy because you're into force fetch, yeah. Yep. Right. And they're doing sh- still short marks. And, and you mm-hmm. know what? I think we all get in the, listen, I'm the first one to raise my hand while you're talking about this thinking like, damn, I didn't do, I, I don't really do this. Um, because it's sexy to, stretch them out and have fun stretching them out. So yeah. And that's the, that's the first thing, Bob, I have to break everybody that I work with of the habit of, Hey, we need to get them out there a hundred yards. Hey, we need to get them out there a hundred fifty. No, you don't need to get them out there. You don't, any dog will run. I can get a dog to run 400 yards very easily, but I can't get them marked accurately easily. Distance is not super cool. Distance is not an issue. Distance is not an issue, at least not usually. And I, uh, you know, whether you're running, you've got a hunting dog or you've got a hunt test dog or you've got a field trial dog. It takes a dog that knows where game is or where retrieve is to be successful. And if you're competing, I mean, especially in the field trial sport, you've got to be extremely accurate in order to beat your competition. And I know there's a lot of complexity in the hunt test sport. You know, those, those tests are very tight and birds are very close together. And dogs have to know very accurately where those birds are. And it, it starts here. That's cool. That's really cool. So now uh, I, ha- I don't know. I, I want to let you kind of take the reins, but I do have <laughs> questions 
like studying? And I, I think that's a good question. I would like to, to, to answer that one if you don't mind. No, yeah, go for it. So I'm not a big, a big believer in studying a dog, um, formally studying a dog until after they're through force to the pile. Um, but I do believe in shaping that behavior so that, you know, a, I'm not going to let the dog make the retrieve until after the mark has come to rest on the ground, because that's part of developing marking accuracy, right? If the dog doesn't wait till the, the bumper comes to rest on the ground, they can't markedly, uh, sorry, they can't accurately mark where it fell. So what I will do is I will just restrain the dog. Or if it's a puppy, I will hold the dog by, um, you know, as I said earlier, if it's a puppy, I'm going to support their front legs off the ground so they really can't go anywhere. If it's a dog that's a little bit older, I'm going to hold them by the collar. And if I'm hand throwing the bumper, I've only got one hand. So I've got to hold them by the collar and I'm going to use my foot to put a little pressure on the base of the tail so that they can't stand up. I'm not standing on their tail so that they're, you know, ready to jump up in their skin and I don't want to startle them, but I definitely want to put a little pressure there. So when they try to get up and go, they can't. Um, and I will always say sit multiple times while a retrieve is in the air. You know, sit, 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 even if I'm restraining them. Again, it's, it's not about, I don't have to get that behavior, you know, down in one day or one session, but I can shape it over many training sessions. You're getting a lot of retreating sessions in if you're listening to what I'm saying. So it's, it, it's pretty easy to shape that behavior over time. Um, and then if, if it's, if I've got somebody else out there throwing, I can certainly kneel down beside the dog and hold the, hold the dog by the collar and put one hand on their butt and just keep them in place until the bumper comes to rest. That's how I look at setting. I do a lot of that as well. I'm I'm right there with you on that. Cool. So, so yeah, all right. We're let's uh I mean unless you want to add more to the shorter marks and precision at that 6 month age. Let's move on to precision as you're developing a little bit older of a dog. Gotcha. And, and we talked about precision at that stage where the gunners are equidistant, maybe at about 25 yards. I think we also mentioned that we're going to start doing some retrieves where they have to remember a mark that wasn't immediately thrown. So an outside double and then perhaps even a triple. But again, those bumpers that the, that the gunners are throwing are clearly visible on the ground so that the dogs have something to target and run to when I, um, I'm also starting to develop a language too with the dog. Uh, when the dog is coming back in with one, if, if I throw a double in the yard or I throw a double in the field with gunners out in the field, I'm going to start saying mark as the dog is coming back in with the first retrieve and as they're getting ready to go and pick up the second retrieve. So when the dog is coming in with the first bird, they get, or the bumper, sorry, they get a few yards from me, I'm going to say mark. When they come in and they sit down and they deliver the first bumper and they look out there at the second retrieve, I'm going to say mark. That happens whether I'm throwing bumpers in the yard and throwing a double in the yard or I'm doing a double with these short 25-yard retrieves in the field. That language that I'm using, I use it over and over and over again. So 
the dogs will start to come to understand that that word means there's another retrieve out there. As, as I think the dogs are ready to, um, ready to go further in their learning, I'll start to push the gunners out a little bit. So that doesn't mean all gunners will get pushed out, but we'll start to change the configuration of the gun stations. Again, always three gunners out in the field or three gun stations. Um, but the long one will be in the center. There will be one that's a little bit longer in the center. There will be one that's uh, what I would call mid distance on one side of the test and a short one on the other side of the test. So to give you an example, you could have a short gun station at about 25 yards on the left side of the test. You could have a middle distance gun at about 35 or 40 yards on the opposite side of the test. And you could have a longer gun at about 55 or 60 yards in the middle of the test. What I'm, what I'm going to start to do now is develop a little bit of concept with the dog. Again, the marks are easy. I don't want the dog to look out there and go, where is it? I want them to be able to see the, the bumper laying on the ground. So lighting condition, you know, we have talked about lighting condition, but I think lighting conditions are important. You've got to, you're, if you're looking into the sun, that white bumper sitting on the ground isn't going to be very visible. But if the sun is behind you, there's a good chance that the, the white bumper will be well lit and the dog will have something to look at. Back to, you know, running this marking test I've just described. As before, I always come up and I run the center long mark first as a single. And you asked the question, Bob, why do I start with a center single? Because as this training progresses, I, what you're trying to do is develop this skill in the dog where they're conditioned to come to line and look for the longest mark, look for the longest gun station. And that longest gun station will always be between two shorter, more attractive gun stations. It's a skill to be able to look to the right, look to the left, and then look up the center for something that isn't quite as attractive. But I'm going to do it in such a way that they don't even see the changes happening as they're happening. You know, they started with three equidistant gunners in the test and they came up and they started with the center one. As time goes on, the one in the center gets a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And they don't even know that they are looking at something that might be difficult for a dog that's never had that experience before. Um, they don't know that, that that's even more difficult than, than, than the average dog at that point. And, um, it's just, that's, that's why that long gun is up the center and why it's always first, because that's the skill those dogs will need. Not only will it work to your advantage in the marking to come up and do that center gun first, but it will also be an advantage when it comes to running blinds, for instance, you know, being able to hold the dog a little this way or pull the dog a little that way. How often do you do you run a test when you come to line and um, you, you you need to pull your dog a little to look to the left and then all of a sudden it looks too far and it looks at something to the right. And then you got to pull it back a little bit to the right and it looks all the way to the right and at something 
past the thing you need to look, get them to look at up the center. I hope I'm not rambling on. No, here, you're, but, no, you're, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You kind of get this windshield wiper situation going on with your dog. You can't get them to look up the center of a test, whether it's blinds or marks, but this is your opportunity here to sort of, uh, teach your, your puppy or young dog that skill without them even really knowing it. Um, and it, it'll, it's a great advantage. Um, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think, you know, the, there's several dogs in my program right now where I'm working on them looking past the obvious, right? And te- yep. teaching them to ignore the obvious and, and work with me. And, and I think if, if this tactic was used at a younger age, they would have a way, way easier time comprehending what I'm putting together for them. And I have yeah. to make it extremely black and white to get, you know, what, then that, that could be my bird boy standing out there waving his arms and yelling, Hey, Hey, and then boom, Hey, Hey, good right there. Good, good. And then tell him to send it, you know, and just over and over and over again, repetition, 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 and teaching, teaching, teaching. And the dogs who've had similar tactics as they were younger come right out and just, there's the guy with the four wheeler. That's where I'm looking. That's the guy that's, you know, they they understand better just because they've been conditioned from the start. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have had clients go through the uh, basics coaching program with me and, you know, they'll get to running derbies. Uh, and they'll say, geez, I can't believe how my dog just comes to line and they look for that longest gun in the field because, and it's simply because they were conditioned to do it over and over and over again, you know, as puppies, as young dogs and, and moving forward. And it was done in such a way that they didn't even see it happening. It was never a struggle. So never a struggle. let's, let's dive into some more of, of the advanced, I guess, precision marking where, you know, at, at a derby, they have to compete until they're two years old at two years old. They're, they're aged out. So that means from zero to six months, you've been creating this at what stage. And, and I'm assuming you're going to tell me every dog's different, but at what kind of skill level are you like, man, they're starting to get it. Let's do, uh, is it, I mean, just go, go to the next step, I guess, now that you've completed this kind of precision, how are you continuing precision as you increase distance, as you increase factors? Yeah. So, uh, just returning to where we just left off, the marks are still very wide open. None of the gun stations really conflict with each other at all. In other words, when I'm doing that long center single, there isn't really a chance that the dog is going to switch and go to one of the other two gun stations accidentally or fall into that trap, I guess you could say. Um, still very wide open, um, but still short and still short enough that the dog can look out there and see the bumpers. And I would say that, again, the dogs have had a lot of retrieving up to now. If you're diligent about getting out there and doing it, you know, as, as often as you can 
especially you know the yard retrieves and then those field retrieves as often as you can. Um, maybe that's three days. Maybe for some people that's three days a week. I would you know, uh, but they start to add up, and that all those things that I talked about ingraining are really start to be there. By the time you're getting close to finishing the basics, which uh, you could say would might be anywhere from, well, it depends on how often you're getting there, but it, it could be, let's say you're finishing the yard work at, you know, 10 months, sort of 10 to 12 months. Would that be fair, Bob? Yeah, but I'm, I'm going to ask you a question and I think I know the answer, but maybe okay. they, they, you know, a listener hadn't followed along close enough. Um, you're defining T pattern as yard work. Yes, I am. I thought so. So yeah, I would, I define it as like they're in transition there. Yeah, no, I'm kind of thinking, I'm kind of thinking end of T work. Um, and maybe even I have a couple of other drills that I do beyond the single T, uh, that, that are hand advanced handling drills. Um, that I think are really important. So, but that's still considered drill, your yard work. And at this it, point it, you're at, it's sort of a, a transition yard work. You could say it's kind of in between yard and field. They, they, the, the last drill definitely is a field drill, but, um, a field handling drill. Cool. The, the one before it is, kind of a transition, you know, between yard and field gets a little bit longer than and bigger than just in the yard, but, um, okay. okay. They, but we're they, on the same page. Much, yeah. We're on the same page with that. So you're looking at a 10 to 12 month old dog, depending on their skill level and how often you're able to get out and work the dog. Exactly. And exactly. now it's time to advance a little bit more. So let it rip. Yeah. So by the time you're getting through, uh, those drills that I just talked about. Now you're getting a dog that almost ready, pretty well ready to handle in the field if you, if you need it to. Um, and I think at that point you're sort of pushing the dogs out, at a, out to a greater distance. They've had so much retrieving up to the point that we were just previously talking about that. And, and we would push those distances a little more, but I would still want them to be able to see the retrieve on the ground. So, and maybe we should back up to that previous step. I am doing that long single up the center first, but I'm also starting to advance their memory a little bit more. I will do a double and I will shoot it short bird one, middle distance bird two. In other words, that might be the right hand bird one and the left hand bird two. At any rate, it's the slightly longer bird that's going to be the go bird. And when they come back with that go bird, they're going to, you know, I'm going to say mark and they're going to, I'm going to point them towards the, the memory bird, which is the shortest bird in the test. They're going to look out there. I keep saying bird, but hear me say bumper. When I say bird, Yep. they're going to, they're going to look out at the bumper and they're going to see it and they're going to target it and they're going to run straight to it and they're going to pick it up. They have to do that. They, you want them to do it to the same level of execution. They, you want them to do a memory retrieve to the same level of execution as a single straight up single so you want to keep those memory trees pretty short uh once i think they've had enough experience with that and they're showing me they can do it over and over and over again then the middle distance bird might be the memory retrieve 
hopefully they can still see it on the ground as well. Um, I just want to make sure that they're targeting and going straight. I don't need to rush stretching them out further uh, before they're really ready for it. But as time goes on and uh, they're getting close to finishing the yard work, I will stretch those marks out a little further. Maybe the long center bird might get up to 100 yards. The outside birds could be, you know, 50 and 75 or something like that. Gotcha. Um, that that would be probably be about the distances I'd be looking at. Um, I can also tell you that during that period of time, uh, before those marks really get long to where it's questionable whether they can see the bumper on the ground, I'm going to start retiring those retrieves as well. So as single, so the, the, the gunner will shoot and throw the bur- the mark, the bumper, and then they will, maybe retire behind and sit down and retire behind an umbrella while the bumpers laying right out there on the ground. Something's changed. They saw it change. They saw this person retire, but the bumpers there, they might retire behind a hay bale. They might retire behind a bush. I'll be looking for different things. They might be retired, retire behind a ghillie blanket. They might retire behind a holding one. I'll be looking for different things that they can retire behind relatively easily in that same configuration as singles where bumpers laying out on the ground that they can see. They think it's so easy. They don't even, there's no question in their mind that they can do it right. and they're going to do it successfully and perfectly every time. And so it's not important to stretch out. That's why I say it's not important to stretch out the distances. It's important to, to introduce them to these various concepts or things that we're going to be getting to do, do multiples, do retired guns, maybe do retired guns with multiples. Um, and always come up and do that long single first up the center. Um, I will get to the point too, where I will do a triple in the field too. Hopefully that again, hopefully they can see all the retreats. If at any time, you know, how do you know you're moving too fast? I think it's a good question that we might ask at this point. Yeah. How do I know I'm moving too fast? It's simple. Is my dog, running straight to the retrieve and finding it without a hunt every time. Are they able to target the retrieve? In other words, they're not coming, they're not looking out and looking at the gun station. If they're looking out at the gun station, you're moving too quickly. You're making things too long. You need to shorten it up. Maybe you don't need to do as many multiples. Um, they're not driving out to the fall area. They're, they're hunting short. You're making things too long. Um, shorten it up. As simple as that. Hey, your goal is not to stretch out these dogs. Your your goal is to create good habits. Um, so that's what I would come back to. And it happens. I mean, even I will set up a test for a young dog, and they, they won't do it perfectly like I want them to, but I very quickly realize that and say, okay, what was wrong here? Was the bumper not visible enough? Was the, was the test too long? Let's make sure that doesn't happen again. I don't want to start that habit. Um, so what do you think so far, Bob? I think your methodology is different than what I have done. (laughs) Um, and that's what I, I, like I'm sitting here thinking and I needed to like while you were just finishing that thought, I, I had another question. And so I had to collect my thoughts. So I'm like, man, I 
that would have helped this young dog that I got right now. And and so my ADD got caught in learning from you in and like, oh, okay, you know, now I'm going to work on that with that dog this week that, and next week and, and like simplify. And so I think it's amazing the the tips you're you're sharing. Um, one thought that I have that is very different from how I do it is the multiple marks. And my method or thought process and how I guess I've been taught and, and work is multiple marks. And, and this is the question that I'm going to ask. The question is, how often are you doing multiple marks for verse singles to prevent head swinging, to prevent other things that can happen with multiple marks? Because forever that I've been doing this, which is a third of how long you've done it, is you know, single, 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 singles, maybe a multiple. Another single, 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 a multiple. And creating and teaching concepts through singles and increasing the difficulty and challenging the dog through singles without having to worry about multiple marks. And and what you're saying is, like, overly simplify but adding multiple marks in there and still having to be super simple, you're just creating memory and the concept of comeback. There might be another one out there. So my question is how often are you doing these multiple marks in a week or a month with a young dog that we've been talking about that six months to 12 months? So let's and, first and, talk and, about- and do you have a comment on my thoughts on, I run way more, way more singles than multiple marks. Well, to that specific question, I think it depends where the dog is at in their training. I think as you get further on in the dog's training and the tests become more complex, you're certainly going to do a lot more singles. Um, but early on, and, and that might, this might sound strange, but early on in the training, I may do more multiples. And let me explain why it maybe makes more sense. First of all, you, you can't forget that even though I'm doing all those test setups in the field that we just talked about, I'm still doing all those hand throws in the air every time I go out and train. And some people have time to go, if they're retired, they might have time to go out and train two or three times a day, five days a week. And maybe somebody's only got, can get out once a day in the evening after they get home from work. But at least during those times, they are a doing hand thrown retreats before they start B in the middle and see at the end. So that could be six, six or nine retrieves. And those hands-on retrieves, because they're so short and simple, do all the multiples you can. Once the dog is at that, once the dog is at that stage where you can do a hand-thrown multiple, I can tell you I virtually only do multiples if I've got the right ground around me. In other words, the dog can look up and see the bumper. Okay. And, um, I think a dog does, let me explain why I think it's important to do multiples. And maybe first I could say why I think dogs don't do multiples well is because one, they don't have enough experience with it. And two, 
they don't have the confidence to do them. Most dogs, or maybe all, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of dogs fail at a test, whether it's a hunt test or a field trial, they fail to do the test because they don't have enough experience doing the multiple, number one, and number two, they lack the confidence to get it done. Um, maybe they lack some good training too, but those two pieces often get missed. I think it, in training, it's important you know, if we want to talk about advanced dogs a little bit, just for a second, I think it's important to do multiples in training with older dogs uh, at least once or twice a week if you have the time. However, the, the thought you need to have in your mind when you do those multiples is that they're so simple, your dog cannot fail. Your dog virtually would have to really muck up not to do them correctly. That means opening up your mark so they don't fall into any traps like switching or going back to an old fall. That means neutralizing the factors out there that you know you don't have any crosswind, you don't have terrain that your dog has to angle, you don't have water that they have to negotiate, uh, those types of things. So get the factors out of there, get the concepts out of there, and just throw three or four marks, probably three. Let's just say three. Let's throw a triple. And um, I don't know if distance really makes a difference, but make it so they virtually can't fail. And your dog goes out and does a triple and goes, wow, that was easy. I didn't have any trouble with that. And if you do that a couple times a week, now you're developing the experience and the confidence your dog needs. And those are two of the ingredients anyway that they need in order to be successful at doing a multiple. I hope I'm not getting too far off track here. No, you're good. But, um, but you, you can't shy away from doing a multiple because I know there are a lot of advantages to doing singles for sure. And we have to do a ton of those, but certainly developing experience and confidence and memory is, is those are two key ingredients to being successful at doing multiple. So going back to the yard and when I'm doing those hands on the trees, I mean, if a dog gets a, gets two or three or four multiples every day, just in the yard with hands on the trees, I mean, they just really got a lot of experience looking out there and go, where's the next retrieve? And I know precisely, they don't even go, where's the next retreat? They go, I know precisely where the next retreat is. And that, that's what they need to have. Going out into the field, if we talk about those field retrieves with multiple guns in the field, you have to remember that even though you have three guns in the field, when you do a long single at the center first, that is a single. When you throw a double, one of those two birds is a single. There's really only one memory bird. So only 33% of your marks are a memory bird. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's you know you're just developing memory a little bit more. You're not necessarily always out there throwing multiple. Um, do you think we should push on with more information about developing that marking, or do you, yeah. do you think we? No, I think really. We, I think we did more than scratch the surface on that. I think that was extremely well said and. So, you know, I think now let's move on to that little bit more advanced dog and, and how you increase concepts. Maybe do you do marking drills to help with precision? Like, go, take the reins. Well, I think we should just push on from, you know, without getting into other marking drills, let's push on with this, you know, same sort of, you know, from where do we go from what I've just described? Yep. And what will happen is 
those gun stations will start to tighten up more than anything. Um, once your dog is through the yard work, that's the, the T. And as I said, I have a couple of other handling drills, which I think they need in order to have uh, enough experience to handle in the field. I'll start to tighten up those gun stations in an, in an uh, effort to introduce concepts into the marks. So what, what, do we, what do I mean by concepts? I mean, essentially, how, how does one gun station impact the work a dog will do on another mark, for instance? You know, and, and that might be the dog is on the way out for the long retrieve up the center and perhaps fall into the trap of going to one of the other gun stations because the lines are tighter now. And at that point, I'm simply going to stop and handle the dog. And if you do that repeatedly, you know, the dog will learn to just continue to focus on the destination it was sent to uh, make the retrieve from and, and pick it up. Am I as concerned now about making sure that the dog can see the retrieve laying on the ground? Not as much because at some point they're going to have enough experience and have developed those habits that I've talked about to drive straight toward the retrieve and to find it in the fall air relatively precisely where they might find it if there's a little more cover in the field. Um, I've given them the tools at that point or the experience at that point to be able to get there without all these these major clues that I put out there before. Um, why why do you I, choose to handle them on a scenario like that versus have the bird boy help? That's a good question, but I think it's part of developing the part of developing the dog's skills in order to continue on with advanced training. Um, you know, we're just going to get to that point where we're going to have to start handling a dog uh, on their marks in order to teach them concepts or to teach them to fight factors and. I think this is as good a time as any to start handling as opposed to um, having the gunner help. I mean, when you, it's not like we're putting any pressure on the dog. I would never put pressure on the dog for falling into one of those traps. Obviously, I've set the, set the test up so the dog may fall into the trap. They have to fall into the trap in order to learn not to fall into the trap. And I have to be a teacher at this point. The teach, teaching means I'm going to show them how to get there. It doesn't mean I'm going to carry a stick and, and, and you know, discipline them because they fall in the trap. It's just me basically saying, stop, no, you're making a mistake. I need you to keep driving out to the long fall. And if it takes 10 casts, it takes 10 casts. If I have to use some attrition, I'm going to use some attrition. I, one thing I failed to mention here is that in my program, when I begin handling dogs on marks, it's not just handling. It's a combination of handling and gunner help. Would you like me to explain that? Yes. So let's take that same scenario. Dog's going out to the long mark up the center and for some reason falls into the trap of going back to one of the short gun stations on the outside of the test. I'm going to blow a whistle and I'm going to cast the dog or handle the dog toward the long station. There's a high likelihood that the dog is not going to take my cast. Most likely. Um, let's be real. Most likely. Yeah. Let's be real. It's, it's rare that, you know, your dog gets it one cast. So I'm going to be more ready with my whistle 
than anything else because I, I know it's going to take an effort on my part to get the dog to take the cat. As I said earlier, it may take me 10 cats. That's probably unlikely, but it may take me four or five with it, with a young dog. Right. And, um, it may take a little attrition. Uh, and, but once the dog takes the cats, once the dog says, you know what, Kevin, I'm going to try something different because that's all it's all about at that point. It's not about the dog being compliant. They don't have enough experience to draw on to be, to understand what being compliant is. They need to just say to themselves, you know what, Kevin wants me to do something different. I should try something different. And oftentimes they'll take a cast off in a direction away from the mark that they were trying to get to. A lot of times it's not toward the mark they're supposed to be going towards. They might be a little lost with that handle. Right. But if they're willing to take a cast away from that short gun station, then it becomes the gunner's job to get them to the correct destination without any more trouble. Exactly. So that gunner should yell to get the dog's attention, to get their head up looking out in the field. You have to remember that dog was probably going into hunt mode at that point when it was bailing into the shorter gun station. So gunner needs to yell to get their head up, to look up out in the field, to acquire the correct destination. And the moment the dog looks up, the gunner should throw a bumper to re-identify the destination. And that usually, that method will usually teach the dog what just happened. It's like, you know, essentially you're saying, hey, don't do this. Here's what you need to do. And once they learn that lesson of not going back to the shortfall, I want to make sure the rest of the, the, rest of the lesson comes off cleanly. That's There's right. only one lesson to be learned, right? Don't go back to the, or don't go to the shortfall. So when they, when they understand that, I'm not supposed to go there. I want to make sure they don't get lost. You know, they have to get that long retrieve relatively easy after that. So I'm going to ask a question that I know my answer to, but would, uh, would you repeat that long bird as a single? Yes. A lot of times I would. I'm not opposed to repeating marks at all. I think. I mean, that's a whole conversation in itself. But. Yeah, hell yeah, I know. <laughs> um, um, I think and there's it, lots of people out there that will disagree with me and lots of people out there that will agree with me. And uh, But I feel that there's a great advantage to repeating marks that a dog may struggle at. It, it's, I, and please, uh, hopefully everybody doesn't misunderstand me. I don't repeat every mark that a dog might have a training moment or a learning moment, if you want to call it that. Um, and, but there are certain times when I go, you know what? I think I can still get a little bit of training out of this. If I do it again as a single, or I think that was so, you know, it it was so discombobulated the way it all came off. I think I want to make sure I do it again so that the dog understands or has a clear understanding of what just happened. I agree. Rather than just, it's more of a game time decision than than every time I do this or every time I do that. It's a game time decision. It's a dog dependent decision. It's a youth first, you know, a seasoned veteran decision. I mean, it it is a game time decision. It's one part that I'll, I'll say right now. And, and everybody has heard me say this before. Dog training is a finesse game. You aren't going to read anything in a book 
that is all and always. It's a finesse game. And, yep. and I think you hit the nail on the head of like, I'm not afraid to throw another one. I don't do it all the time. I don't do it every day. I don't do it every week. But but there are definitely opportunities where it's like that dog is definitely you use the word discombobulated and it's like I just need to straighten him out, help him out here. Let's try and get a little bit more learning out of this lesson and straighten him out. And then they end on a confident note. And then I put it in my little memory bank of this got them today. Let's practice this in a different location another day. I agree. For sure. Cool. That was awesome. Nice little tidbit. Yeah. All yeah, right. Uh, um, yeah. Let's leave that at that. Leave it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, we can really dive into that rabbit hole and we'll be in hour yeah, three. Yeah. Exactly. So move on. Um, you're, you're doing an awesome job. Um, keep on rolling. So I'm loving it. I, I guess I, you know, I, once those, as I said, once those dogs are handling in the field, I'm looking to teach and we're kind of getting at, let me just back up a little bit. We're, we're getting out a little bit of, you know, what the original topic was, was, uh, developing marking in young dogs or good marking habits in young dogs, uh, precision, confidence, uh, good memory those types of things. And now we're getting into a little bit of a different department where we're starting to teach the dog concepts. Um, and, and I think, I don't know if we'll go too much farther on this, but essentially the first concept a dog learns is to not return to a fall, not to return to an old fall that they've already retrieved the bird from. And it's probably not the best way to put it, but let's say, not return to an old fall and hunt that old fall again, that would probably be more accurate. Right. Um, and that being the first concept, if we talk about the same configuration that I've been talking about along, and let's, let's talk about that configuration. What is it called? I call it the stagger triple. Other people have different names for it. Uh, Jamie calls it the stagger triple. And it, it really is one of my favorite configurations in dog training. I think if you're going out to the field and you don't know what configuration you want to put out there today, but you want to work on a configuration, set up the stagger triple. That's the long bird up the center, the middle distance bird on one side of the test, and a short bird on the other side of the test. Um, you can just do so much with it. At any rate, coming back to the, the discussion, if you've got your stagger triple set up, uh, and you want to work on concept, you, you have to push the birds a little bit further now so that you set up traps for the dogs to fall into. You have to tighten up the marks a bit so the dogs fall into those traps. So you're, you're pushing them out and you're bringing the outside marks into the guns, into the, the test a little bit more. Um, you would normally start with a middle distance single. So that would be the, let's say you have the middle distance bird on the left-hand side of the test. Go and do that as a single. Then do a double uh, using the long bird as the merry bird. So you would shoot long bird one, short bird two. Dog goes and gets the short bird. Now you send the dog to the long bird. And because that long bird up the center is a memory bird, there's more possibility that the dog is not going to drive all the way out to the long bird, that they may go back to the middle distance bird on, on the left side of the test. 
And then you would go through that process that I just described earlier about stopping and handling and then using gunner help after the dog takes the cast. And in that moment, when that happens, you're teaching that dog that first concept, don't return to the old fall to hunt for another bird. Can I ask you um, a, a more I'd... detailed question on that before you keep explaining? I'm sorry. Just so I can envision yeah. envision the field. Yeah. You've got your left-hand bird as your single, a long bird out the center, and a right-hand bird as your go bird. The shorter right-hand bird, yeah. When you're throwing your left-hand bird as the single, the first bird out, are you throwing it? into the test or out of the test so you follow me yeah absolutely i do and and i don't think it really matters i do what i do think matters is which way you throw the long bird and the reason why i say that is because if you're handling the dog away from the left bird i would like to be you're obviously going to be handling the dog with a right-hand cast. Are you following me? Yep. And if I'm giving the dog a right-hand cast to go to the long station, I also would like that cast to mean to go to the correct side of the long gun station. So which way would you throw the long bird? To the right. Yep. To the right. Because if I'm giving a right-hand... Right. I don't want to be... I don't want to be giving a right-hand cast like let's say we threw the long bird to the left. If I give the dog a right hand cast and it's taking the right hand, the right hand cast and going toward the long station, but perceiving that as a cast to the right hand side of the long gun station, now I'm handling it to the wrong side of the gun station. And then you're going to have to stop it and cast it to the left or have the bird. Exactly. So now the lesson becomes messy, right? It just Mm -hmm. becomes messy. So in recognizing that the most likely place that the dog is going to, or the most likely trap that the dog is going to fall into is going back to the left-hand middle distance mark. I want to throw the long bird away from that mark, if that makes sense, if you can visualize that. 100%. And again, for a young dog, that makes the most black and white sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I dig it, man. This is some good stuff. This is really, really good. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you not agree? <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I love it. I love yeah. talking dog training. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think it has to be, I think dog training should be, for the most part, logical. You know, I mean, obviously, there, as you said, there's a lot of finesse. There's a lot of reading that goes on, you know, reading the dogs. And um, that's the other side of dog training. But I think you as I said right at the outset, as, as we started this program, you can't be haphazard about what you do. You can't just come out to the field and go, oh, let's just put one out there and one out there and one out there and it's all good. I mean, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time, not only that day, but you may be wasting an entire career, dog's career. You know, just be nothing more than average or less than average if you do it that way. You really should know what you're, you know, have a good sense of, what you're going out to set up every day and that, that you have to be a student of the sport in order to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love this podcast, man. Cause right now I'm listening and digesting and, and a lot of great tips, a lot of great tips. So let's take a little bit more, um, 
I, I don't want to cut it off yet. So let's, okay. let's kind of continue our process, if you will, of maintaining precision marking during, during the more advanced work, right? You know, it, Hey, I think that's a great question right there, which I hadn't considered or, you know, great thought right there, which I hadn't considered because I'll get clients that'll, you know, I'm, I coach people. I'm not there every day watching what their dogs are doing, but I'm getting feedback every day from what they're doing. So I'll say to them, Hey, go out and set this up and run this. And I'll get feedback like, mm, he, you know, his marking was a little off. In fact, I have a data tracking sheet to, to keep track of just marking accuracy for each dog. So when they say, eh, it's marking exercise is a lot, what do you think you would do? I mean, honest question. Um, I, at least I would, I would shorten the marks up. I would throw them on a golf course and I would do them with singles. And I would do that for a period of time until I restored that marking accuracy. Um, but I can tell you that it comes back pretty quick if you've developed your dog's marking the way I suggested. In fact, it rarely falls off very much if you're doing it the way I suggested. You know, it's once you, that's, that's why, you know, and again, at the beginning I said, if you do these things at the start, you develop habits that almost never change. If you try to do these things after they've already developed bad habits, those bad habits almost never change. <laughs> and that's the, truth. that's the truth. And I, you know, and that's where we really don't have time to go into more detail, but sometimes that's where the rub is, man. Like I don't get puppies from eight weeks old to develop unless they're mine. Yeah. And, and I would encourage, sorry, I'll pay me to catch up. But. No, you're okay. But my thought is, you know, you're trying to pick apart a dog and figure out strengths and weaknesses and holes in the training and what they actually know and what they don't know and fixing bad habits while growing other new habits and getting them, like we you've mentioned, some of the most fun is getting the most out of each individual dog, whether that's a junior hunter and that's the best they're going to do, but damn it they're a good junior hunter and they're happy and the owners are happy or it's a master hunter or a field trial, you know, dog. It's, it's like what you just laid out in an hour and 43 and a half minutes is the most perfect specimen that we can provide possible. What isn't necessarily possible is the, guy or gal who's listening to this that has a two-year-old that runs at the gun that puts on a big hunt and quits and sits down that you know those are the nuances to training that is the finesse is the the dissecting the problem and working through the problem and simplifying and reteaching and you know i would say if everybody listened to this podcast and said, I've got a three-year-old master hunter that does X, you could go back to the six-month mark where you were talking and say, let's work on this. Would you agree? I do. And I, I, I don't want people to misunderstand me that, you know, you can't improve marking. Um, that I, I certainly there are things that I do 
uh, or ask my clients to do on a regular basis in order to improve marking, you know, some marking drills, probably some you've heard of, or, and again, that's another conversation, but, um, but you'll find that with those dogs, it's constant maintenance. You know, you can, once you go back to starting, you'll go and do those drills and you'll get the marking better. And then you'll dive back into your more advanced training and that marking begins to wane. So it's constant back and forth battle, um, trying to keep them advanced as retrievers and then, but keep their marking sharp. It's much easier when you do it right from the start to just have good solid marking. And then all you really have to work on more often than not is the advanced training. Right. Um, uh, did I answer your question? <laughs> I think so. I think so. But, oh, it, but, yeah. but, but again, that, I guess the, the con context of the, it was more of a, a statement. thought. Yeah. Statement of yeah. like, this is the prime. Yes. If I had this from the start, but, but nobody does, nobody's got the perfect dog. And so in the moment, working through the problem and thinking through why did that dog suck today and why are you going home with your head hung and like I just I mean I remember with my first dog there'd be days I'd go home feeling like a champ and I can't believe this dog did that and oh what a we're doing it and then literally the next day you're like what you know I don't even want to talk to him anymore he's not I'm not you know (laughs) He can sleep outside in the rain, the son of a gun, and, and yeah, you just yeah. get humbled so quickly from day to day to some degree. And and that, my friends, listeners, is the fun, the challenge, the, yeah. the analyzing and the thought process and then how to work on it in weeks. So many people in today's society, and I'm I'm – one of those people I would guess sometimes it's like instant gratification. I want stuff now. Amazon delivered. It's not here in two days. I'm pissed off. Mm-hmm. Right. You swipe, 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 swipe till you see what you like. And that's not dog training. This is a process and this is a Absolutely. journey and this is a marathon, not a sprint. So if your dog's not stopping on a whistle, good. Well, how long have you been working on it? Three days. Unbelievable. Three days he's not sitting on a whistle. Uh, like, come on, man or lady. So, that's frustrating for me as a pro, too, when I listen to that. And it's like, I will spend a week on just getting a dog to stall in the water, or I will spend a week on getting a dog to sit to the whistle like you just described, because I know how important that skill is. I don't want to rush past it. Don't right. rush past anything when you're training through the, you know, through the early work. Yeah. There's certain things you just want have because they mean so much down the road you know there's nothing worse than a career limiting fault that didn't need to be a career limiting fault if you just would have spent a little extra time on it um you know early yeah i i agree i think we all get in the habit of doing sexy stuff you know and whatever that sexy hey you just said it i mean you just named it right i mean i've never heard that but that is the truth yeah yeah, it, it's the sexy stuff, and I fall into it too, right? I remember one dog uh-huh. I had, you know, that son of a gun could line any blind. This is a, It's Memphis, so for all you listeners, 
This is Memphis. You could, Kevin, you could put a blind out anywhere. Dead bird back. Mm-hmm. Send it. And she just was the most honest, hardworking, line-holding dog that I, I've ever seen. But guess what happened in one of her first master tests? She needed to handle. Oh, no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, And then when the going got tough and there was no e-collar and you can't yell, hey, no, knock it off, go over here, she just kept digging, kept digging, kept yeah. digging. And it was a valuable, valuable lesson of balance. And it was super sexy to show up and have buddies be like, oh, my gosh, look at her hold that line. Look at her go, oh, my, oh, she just lined it. And that was a young guy with an ego that was like, look at, look at her go. And a, a humbling learning experience of, to me, that was the sexy stuff, right? That's my example of what the sexy stuff is. It looks sexy to line yeah. a blind at 300 yards across a pond and over a point and this and that, like whatever it was. Yeah. But then when I needed her to handle on not a very difficult blind and just take a little slight angle to catch a little wind and, you know, hit a little keyhole or whatever the case may be, she just dug and dug and dug and I was out. So it wasn't so sexy then, was it? Nope. So don't mistake the basics. Don't mistake critical pieces of your training like precision marking that we just talked an hour and 50 minutes about to get your six month old puppy to do a 200 yard mark, you know, not important. Nah, that was to me, that was, uh, I needed to hear it. Right. I probably needed to hear that right now. And I can think of several dogs that are sitting in, you know, waiting for me to let them out one more time tonight. And, and something that I can take a step back and say, okay, I'm not going to do that this week. I'm going to do that for a while. It's not a week fix. Does that make sense? Everybody that's listening, like I'm not going to fix something that maybe I've created or owners have created or the dog has created or we, you know, we do it all to ourselves. I'm not going to fix that this week. It might be the next four months. Exactly. Hey, I spend, I spend that kind of time with clients on issues months, maybe even a year trying to fix issues. No fun. (laughs) No No. fun. No, no, I agree. Well, Kevin, I think we wanted to cover like four topics and we covered one in extreme depth and I enjoyed every minute of it. So what that tells me is we need to have you on our show again in the coming few weeks, month, two months, whatever your schedule allows to dive into more of your knowledge and share it with the world, man. I I thoroughly enjoyed your conversation. I thought your ability to explain and and walk people through it was, was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, So do me a solid, give everybody uh, where they can find you, how they can find you. If they want to use you as a resource, um, tell them everything you got going on, bud. Yeah, um, that would be great. Um, So my website is the retrievercoach.com. And uh, if you're an amateur out there doing your training or even a pro, because I work with them as well, um, and you're looking to uh, maybe develop your program further, maybe you need somebody to help you get your dog through the basics, uh, maybe you'd like to attend a workshop, um, go to my website. You can find out more about me. 
what I do, how it works. Um, and, uh, I'd be happy to work with you. Happy to help. And Bob, I love doing this. I have to tell you, I was a little nervous at first, uh, but that didn't take long to settle in. You're, you're a lot of fun to fun, fun to talk to. I appreciate it. I thought you did a phenomenal job. So thank you so much for being a part of our program and taking time out of your night to, to join us and share your knowledge with everybody that tunes in. Um, guys, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Do me a favor. Go give him a follow on Instagram and check out his website. Solicit him for some help. And until the next episode, do us a favor. Click subscribe. Click that five-star review. Leave a little comment if you enjoyed this episode. Reference this episode. Thank you, everybody. We'll catch you on the flip side. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you enjoy the show and want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes. Thank you.